0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good, morning. Good morning. All right, um, we're coming back today to First Timothy. Uh, we're trying to take turns—some parts on the Old Testament and New Testament, or have a, a, a little bit of both um, parts of God's Word. And today we're turning to—we're finishing up chapter one of First Timothy, verses eighteen. Before we get there, uh, we want to ask you this question. You don't have to answer but what are you willing to do for, thin, uh, for $10 billion? What would you be willing to do to get there? <laughs> Two-thirds of Americans uh, were pulled, pulled, and they would agree at least in one or some of the ver- of several of, uh, of these statements. This was a survey made in 1991 and here's what people said that they would be willing to do these things for ten thousand billion dollars Would you abandon the entire family? Uh, They would abandon their entire family, 25% of the people that were polled said they could do that. They would abandon their church, 25%. They would become prostitutes for a week or more, that was 23%. Would give up their American citizenships, 16%. Would leave their spouses, 16%. Would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free, 10% people said that they would be willing to do that for money. Would it kill a stranger, 7%. Would put their children for, up for adoption, 3%. Um, we do live in a world, I mean, there, it, it's a minority, we look at that, and we think that's, thankfully, it's not a whole lot of people that think that way, that is willing to compromise. But I believe that all of us have areas that we're willing to compromise. In our passage today, we will see, we'll actually discuss the relevance of one personal, one's personal conviction in the life of integrity it contains both encouragement and warning to us in our text today. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18. This command I entrust to you Timothy my son in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you would fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come with all reverence before your word and the instructions of your word that you preserved through the centuries, and they are still relevant for today, Lord, we know we live in a day and time where um, people are willing to compromise in so many ways, and here we have an exhortation, not only to Timothy, but to all of us, to fight the good fight, to keep a good conscience. Lord, I pray that may we be warned by um, even these two men there mentioned to not follow in their same path. Lord, I pray for your grace, I pray that you would help us to focus and to Really learn from your word, learn from you, and be corrected, and be instructed, and be encouraged. Lord, we're thankful for all that you do in us. I pray that your spirit might be at work even as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Paul has given Timothy a charge to stop the Ephesian opponents, from uh, false teaching. We have discussed that so far. There were false teachers even in the leadership, and um, Timothy's mission was to correct and to uh, deal with these uh, men teaching false doctrine. Having discussed the theological problems of heresy, he now returns to that charge and reminds Timothy that it is in accordance with the prophecies originally identifying Timothy as having the spiritual gifts necessary to do the task. Just as God entrusted Paul with the gospel, so now Paul entrusts this charge to Timothy. The note of authority is strong. Paul is God's apostle. The gospel he preaches is true. Timothy's function is divinely validated through prophecy, as we read here. Timothy should be encouraged because the same word of God who adequately strengthened Paul also has provided the proper gifts for Timothy to use in fighting this spiritual war. He should also be careful. The same traps that ensnare the opponents are also present for him. And he is therefore to concentrate on remaining faithful and keeping his conscience clear. He must maintain his spiritual integrity. So today our sermon will have uh, three aspects of this good fight that we are all invited to fight in. So there is a charge in verse 18, and then verse 19, first part of verse 19, how then we fight this good fight, and then lastly, failing, what happens when we fail to fight the good fight. So starting off with a charge to fight the good fight in verse 18. We read here, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Now, Timothy was not in this battle to fight alone. He was commissioned by Paul, and his call to the ministry was confirmed by a revelation from God concerning him. His service as a soldier for Christ was thus to set the context of the authority and affirmation of the church. So that, that prophecy gave him the authority of his mission. He was responsible and accountable to the church and the head of the church for his role in this battle. To carry out his responsibility to the Lord and to the church, Timothy had first to obey this command we read here that Paul says "These command I entrust to you. Command is a word used for a military order. And as such, it is not a suggestion. It is not open for discussion. It is a mandate to be carried out obediently. So in chapter 5, how about we turn there? Chapter 5, verse 21, we see Paul using a similar language there. Where he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Paul charged Timothy and made him accountable before God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the elect angels to fulfill his mission. In chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, Um, He gives another charge. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Timothy is accountable to God for his actions. That staggering accountability led Paul to solemnly charge him. If you go to 2 Timothy, chapter 4, um, he has a similar charge here. Um, Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So Timothy's charged. He will answer before God and every leader, every pastor, every elder, we will have the same accountability before the Lord. You will have, we'll have to answer to God and to Christ um, in his ministry. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, we read that um, elders are accountable for how they manage the life of their sheep. Um, in James 3, 1, we see also the responsibility of elders and the accountability that they have before the Lord. Timothy had a duty to God in the church, something that our self indulgent culture knows little about. We talk much about freedom and success and joy and peace, but little of the duty. Yet we are duty bound to obey and to fulfill our ministries that the Lord has given us. Those things are not optional. Um, I see our, even our Lord Jesus in tr- in talking about the importance of the duty. We have been given a charge. We have been entrusted with something. So turn to Luke 17. It's a similar um, text here where the Lord is, is giving an illustration of our responsibility to fulfill our duty. Luke 17. And we're looking at verse 7 through verse 10. Luke 17, verse 7 through 10. And here is the the story that Jesus goes, Which one of you, having a slave, plowing, or tending a, a sheep, will say to him, When he has come in and from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But he will not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. Wouldn't this be the way, Is the saying? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, and we have done only that which we ought to have done. Um, I, I really appreciate this passage. It, it, it really challenges the thinking that we're entitled when they're serving the Lord. When we do something for God, we're entitled to receive something in return. In actuality, this is a command. We have no other option. That's what he entrusted us. It, it would be harsh if he didn't give the the gifts, and the ability for us to fulfill this charge and that command. But Paul understood clearly the concept of duty. When he gave his testimony before King Agrippa, he said, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision that he had. In Acts chapter 26. And then to the Corinthians he wrote, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe of me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if I, if I guess my will, I have a stewardship that was entrusted to me. He understood his call. He recognized that he was under divine obligation to use his gifts and to fulfill his calling. Turn to Acts 20, verse 24. I think it goes in the same lines of 1 Timothy here where he's charging the Ephesian elders in the same way he's charging Timothy now that is in leadership in the church of Ephesus. As Paul is saying goodbye here in chapter 20, in verse 24, he says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I might finish may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That was his calling. And uh, to us, every servant of the Lord is duty-bound to carry out his ministry. We all have been given the Great Commission um, to make disciples. We all have been given The commands to serve one another in the body. And many of God's servants have been given missions. So Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even Jonah, we see God's revelation to them, charging them to fulfill a mission. In 2 Timothy 4 1 and 2, that we just read, Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word. That was his mission and to preach it in season and out of season. But in our society, with its emphasis on entertainment or anti-authoritarian attitude, critic mentality, or psychological orientation, our message will often be rejected. We don't like rules, we don't like commands, we don't like charges. That, however, does not excuse us from our duty. Secondly, Timothy was entrusted with a commission to fulfill. We read of the word "entrusted," that refers to the committing of something of value to another person. It is used, for example, to speak of putting a deposit in a bank, for instance. Paul had given Timothy a valuable deposit, God's truth. So it's still in First Timothy or Second Timothy, uh, verse two, chapter two, and verse two. Um, it says, "The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." So this treasure that was entrusted to Timothy, he had to pass it on. He had to pass on the baton to others. So which was the treasure he was to guard diligently. Paul himself had been entrusted with that same deposit. right? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul, as Eric uh, preached from the, um, this text, Paul is giving his testimony. And um, in verse 11, he says, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to... Oh, Actually, I'm reading Ephesians, sorry. <laughs> First Timothy chapter one, verse eleven. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, Paul, what has been entrusted to Paul and now has been entrusted to Timothy? The gospel, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ by faith alone. Um and the same deposit of the truth has been handed down through the, century to, through the century to us. So Timothy did fulfill his mission of entrusting what was entrusted to him to others also. We must pers- preserve, preserve it and hand it down intact to the next generation. Thirdly, Timothy had a confirmation to live up to. Timothy's calling has been confirmed through prophecies. Prophets in the New Testament era spoke the revelation of God's will to the early church. Um, The prophecy is the gift of proclaiming God's word, and in one sense, anyone who preaches and teaches the word of God, obviously not everyone is a prophet, um, but whenever they're teaching, they're proclaiming God's word just like a prophet does. Unlike the present-day teachers and preachers, however, New Testament prophets occasionally received some direct revelation from God. And while doctrine was the jurisdiction of the apostles, prophets seemed to be the instruments of God used to speak practical issues. We had um, in the Old Testament, as we we're studying for Samuel, we had Samuel was a prophet of God prophet Gad was also a prophet of God. And then in the New Testament, we had men, not necessarily just the apostles, that were entrusted with prophecy. And then we read that there was a prophecy previously made to Timothy, which literally means leading the way to... Up to this point, there was something there in the past. It implies a series of prophecies that had been made concerning Timothy in connection with him having received his spiritual gift. So if you turn to chapter 4, verse 14, Paul is reminding him of these prophecies again. He says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The presbytery is referring to the, the body of the elders of a church. So the prophecies then were those that is specifically and supernaturally so called Timothy into the ministry. Paul's command to Timothy was not his own, but was confirmed by God through the ministry of some prophets. The text implies that there have must have been a meeting of the prophets of the church. And there were people known to be within God's confidence and to know his intentions. God always revealed to his people his, their mission. Uh, we read in Amos 3.7 that surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. He does not leave us in a, in a vacuum. This meeting considered the situation which was threatening to the church and came to the conclusion that Timothy was the person to deal with it. So, those prophecies were specifically for Timothy to fight the good fight and, um, with the gospel that he was entrusted. We can see the prophets acting exactly in the same way in Acts chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. Let's turn there. Acts 13. An example of, uh, of the church of God operating with that level of revelation from God to set servants apart for the service. So Acts chapter 13, we're looking at verses 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch, the church, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. All right, so we had prophets and teachers. And then Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manain, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they... Had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, this is an example illustrates that Barnabas and Saul has been, have been set apart and had received this prophecy that the Lord has commissioned them for that mission. There was the same thing that happened to Timothy. He had been marked out by the prophets as the one to deal with the situation in the church. It may well have been that he. Shrink, shrunk from the greatness of the task which faced him, and here Paul then is encouraging him with certain considerations. Paul says to him, Timothy, you have been chosen. You're the one, and you cannot refuse this task. Something like that happened um, actually uh, some centuries ago with this Scottish reformer, John Knox. I know many of you have been familiar with John Knox. He had been teaching in the church of St. Saint Andrew, Saint Andrews, and his teaching was supposed to be private, but many came, to, many came to it, and for he was obviously a man with a message. He was a great preacher. So the people urged him that he would take the preaching place upon him, but he utterly refused, refused alleging that he would not run where God had not called him. If God didn't call me, I'm not going to be here. So they privately consulted consulted among themselves, having with the council Sir David Lindsay of the Mount, and they concluded that they would give a charge to John, and that publicly by the mouth of their preacher. So the Sunday came when the services started, and Knox was in church, and John Ruff was the one who was preaching that day, And John Ruff, the preacher, directed his words directly to John Knox, who was sitting down in the pew, saying, Brother, and I mean, can you imagine we're preaching here and I'm speaking directly to you? Brother, you shall not be offended, notwithstanding that I speak unto you that which I have in charge, even from all of those that are here present. Which is this, in the name of God and of his son Jesus Christ and in the name of these that you presently call, call you by my mouth, I charge you that you refuse not this holy vocation, but that you take upon the public office and charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's heavenly displeasure and desire that he shall multiply his graces with you. And then, in the end, he looked at the rest of the people in the audience, and he said, "Was not this the char- your charge to me, and do you not approve of this vocation?" And then the rest of the people in the pew said, "It was, and we approve it." So where is where is the uh, John ashamed burst and burst forth in most abundant tears? He withdrew himself to his chamber. His countenance and his behavior from that day until the day that he was compelled to present himself as now the preacher of that church uh, did sufficiently declare the grief and the trouble of his heart. John Knox was chosen. He did not want to answer that call, but he had to, for the choice had been made by God. And, you know, it's not that God forces people into ministry. He doesn't... um, push someone to become an elder, to become a pastor. He calls that. He gives gifts to the people and then he confirms through the church. Years afterwards, the the regent of Scotland James Morton uttered his famous epitaph on uh, by jo- by Knox's graveside and this is what he wrote. In respect that he bore God's message to whom he must take account for the same. He albeit he was Weak and unworthy creature, and a fearful man feared not the face, faces of man. He did embrace that calling. The consciousness of being chosen gave him courage. So it's the same situation here with Timothy. Timothy, you can do this because you have been chosen by God, because he selected you. You have been chosen. You cannot let down God, and you cannot let us down. To every one of us, there comes God-choosing god choosing And when we are summoned to some work for him, we dare not to refuse it. Now, I just want to make an explanation here that pastors and elders are no longer called to the ministry in such a dramatic fashion. I think the situation with John Knox was a a special situation. Um, I don't believe the Lord uh, wants us to go about in that way. As we see in chapter 3, verse 1, the call to ministry rises from the inside. Actually, How about we turn there in 1 Timothy 3? We're going to see in a few weeks um, the explanation of the calling to those that are called to ministry. This is the instruction. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, It is a fine work he desires to do. So what the text is saying is that the call to ministry rises now, not from the outside, not from external prophecies given by a person and saying, I'm calling you to be a preacher, but from the inside, from an inner desire that a person has. The call of ministry rises from inside through desire rather than outside from revelation. That desire is then to be confirmed by the church. And the church, observing a man's life and service, can confirm whether he gives evidence of being called by God to the ministry. That confirmation by the church should keep us going when the battle is fierce. Having been commissioned by God through divine revelation or now, in the time that we're living in, by the confirmation of God's people, a leader can't quit. So as a way of application and even illustrating this, um, you know, of some time I had a, had a desire to be in a pastoral ministry um, and had gone to school to equip myself better for that work, for that task, and spent some time with, you know, church leaders and saying, is, is this me just... Having an internal desire that doesn't is not true. So having others to examine me, if I have the qualifications, if I have um, the the right doctrine, um, and the right calling, and so having that confirmation, and that's what we're gonna do it next week. Is you guys um, that have been seeing me for this years are going to approve or disapprove of uh, my calling. So in the same thing with Timothy, and now with all of those after him. That confirmation by the church should keep us going from the, when the battle is fierce. I have seen many, many guys that went into seminary and uh, didn't, didn't endure. This is too hard. This is too difficult for me. Which really begs the question, were you called to begin with? If, and that's when some people say statements like, I mean, if you can do anything else, do that something else. Don't, don't, don't do ministry. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't agree with that statement. You know, I just read here that it is a good thing. It is a good thing to have this desire. So we want to encourage it. We want to discourage people that they're self-proclaimed and self-appointing uh, um, uh, elders or deacons the call of god and his life should encourage timothy and all other preachers to fight the good fight so the good fight the the word there uh, good we have seen it before the word kalos in greek and it means in something that is intrinsically intrinsically good something that is noble something that is excellent and something that is virtuous there is the duty to God and the church of Jesus Christ to motivate the embattled preacher and the knowledge that it is the noblest warfare in all of the universe. What better thing to live and die for the great war between God and Satan? A war for the souls of men and women and the glory of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That is a great fight to be involved in. Now, how do we fight this good fight? We have received the command to fight this good fight, but how do we fight it? Well, verse 19 and the beginning part there, verse 19, very simply, Paul states, keeping faith and a good conscience. Keeping faith and a good conscience. How to fight well? The question we must ask is, how can we fight the good fight? Simply by keeping faith and a good conscience. This short phrase is deceptively comprehensive because, as a commentator John Stott points it out, it contains what is objectively and subjectively necessary for fighting the good fight. What does it mean by that? On the one hand, we must hold to the objective deposit of the faith meaning the apostolic faith, meaning the gospel, which Paul has preached that it impacted his own life. That was the apostolic faith. And then on the other hand, we must hold tight to the subjective treasure of a good conscience. That is something that uh, all of us have a different conscience. If you're wanting to know more about conscience, I'm not going to give a whole lot. There's some application here, but we have a lecture on um, our equipping hour, all talking about the conscience and the role of the conscience for our lives. Um, But let's see first, what what does it mean to keep the faith? So we see, first of all, that if we are to fight well, we must have a solid grasp of the objective content of our faith, the essentials. If you love God while knowing little about him, we will love him less by knowing more about him? Of course not. The deeper the knowledge of our infinite, loving, merciful, gracious, holy God, the deeper our love for him will will become sad truth for so many Christians is that their love of God languishes due to their lack of knowledge of Him. They simply do not know much about God. They may have a relationship with Him, but it is, is stunted by their ignorance of Him. We live in a generation that hates doctrine. They don't want to have anything to do with doctrine. But doctrine is important. Evangelical ignorance is a fact most Christians cannot Some Christians cannot even name the Ten Commandments. Many cannot even name five of them. Many do not even know where they are found. They don't know how to find the books of the Bible. If we are to love God as we ought, we must know the doctrine of God. We must know the doctrine of Christ. We must know the doctrine of sin, just to name a few. But our knowledge does not not come from A textbook on dogmatics, but straight from the Bible. That's why we're spending a whole year in our equipping hour to study the Bible. How do we understand the Bible? How do we interpret it correctly? That's why we're putting so much emphasis on that. Because the Bible, with its history, its narratives, its poetry, its parables, it is its didactic passages in apocalyptic sections is God's truth for us. It is the body of faith. It is the explanation of our faith, the things that we believe in. The Bible provides a multifaceted and many textured vital knowledge of God that anoints the mind and affections with love. I cannot urge you enough about this necessity of knowing the Word of God. It's just a way of simple application. Begin by learning one book. Maybe pick the book of Romans or Philippians. And, and study systematically. Maybe read just a few verses and try to meditate. Read a commentary. Know its team, its divisions, and its unity. What you know, and why we do that, is what you know and believe about God is everything. Because what you know and believe will determine how you live. Doctrine determines conduct. Right doctrine makes it possible for people to fight the good fight. If you're ignorant, if you don't know much of Scripture, it will put you in a very vulnerable position for all sorts of attacks. You know, some attacks where Paul says that some are just carried out by the wind of every Heresy. Why? Because they don't know the truth of Scripture very well. So they're easy prey. They're easy prey for those that are attacking the truth. All right. How about the second way that we can um, also fight the good fight? Second part is that we must keep, we must hold on to a good conscience. So the conscience was an immense issue for Paul like a looming planet that has filled his whole horizon. It was something that he looked up to, and he valued having this good conscience. Three other times in the pastoral epistles, Paul ref- referenced the importance of a healthy conscience. So even in verse uh, 5 here of chapter 1, he says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and, what? A good conscience. In chapter 3, verse 9, it says something similar. But hold on to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. When he was, um, the rest of the, test, the New Testament testifies to Paul's empowerment through a good conscience. He courageously took his stand before the Sanhedrin, looked him straight in the eye, and declared, My brothers... I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Acts chapter 23. Then standing before the governor Felix, he confidently declared, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And then to the Romans, Paul also voiced his amazing affirmation of love for his people as true because it was spoken with a clear conscience. He says in Romans 9.1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. So we see that for Paul, a good conscience is at the very root of fighting the good fight Not only that, but by by coupling faith and good conscience as he has, Paul was saying that a good conscience is key to maintaining the sound faith. You can't separate those um, from being together. John Calvin put this succinctly. He says, A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. People that allow their conscience to be um, seared, there's nothing that you can prevent them from shipwrecking their faith. That's all true, true. I have seen friends, including a seminary professor with whom I spend time in prayer and ministering together, or even another whom I never dreamed would stray from the faith, so currently violate his conscience that later he gave up on faith and left the church. When morals slip and doctrines decline, the fight is soon lost. Um, in his book, um, Ven- The Vanishing Conscience, uh, Dr. MacArthur says the conscience may be the most underappreciated and least understood attribute of all humanity. Psychology is usually less, lessly con- less concerned with understanding the conscience than attempting to silence it. We live in a culture that has elevated pride to the statu- status of a virtue. Self-esteem, positive feelings, personal dignity are what our society encourages people to seek. And at the same time, moral responsibility is being replaced by victimism. I cannot be blamed for this. I was a victim for poor parenting. Which teaches people to blame someone else for their personal failures and iniquities. More and more are attempting to explain the human dilemma in wholly unbiblical terms. Temperament. It's just temperament or addiction. A dysfunctional family. The child within. Codependence, or a host of other irresponsible escape mechanisms, promoted by promoted by secular psychology. The potential impact of such drift is frightening. Remove the reality of sin, and you take away the the possibility of repentance. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity, and you avoid the divine plan of salvation. Erase the notion of personal guilt, and you will eliminate the need for a savior. Obliterate the human conscience, and you will raise an immoral and irredeemable generation. The church cannot join hands with the world in such a grossly satanic enterprise. To do so, it is to overthrow the very gospel we are called to proclaim. End quote. So there is a necessity of cultivating a clear conscience. It should be paramount for all of us believers. Conscious disobedience to God will kill our spiritual life. Obedience to Christ may appear to be legalistic by society's standards, but our conscience calls it out. Some habit may be okay for others, but for you is wrong because what? Because your conscience is not safe with that. There may be an attitude or a thought pattern that no one else can detect. And you're free to nourish at the expense of your own conscience. It may be that the world calls it, you know, people say, well, just it's just a little white lie. It might start this way. It might be just a small compromise done in secret. It may be a relationship that is wrong. But the only voice telling you so is your conscience. If your inner voice calls out, heed it. Do not sin against your own conscience. This is also hard, especially today when conscience is dismissed dismissed as a mere safety device collectively created to protect activity, civility. But God's word is clear. We must cultivate a good conscience. A good conscience is the mother of a sound faith and the means to fight the good fight. That has been my experience and it has been the experience of many other believers. I can stand up to substantial pressure if my conscience is clear. If I don't have anything bothering me, I can be bold to speak of God's word. But without a clear conscience, there is no power to endure temptation or to resist temptation. I recall from my church history class the early martyr of the English Reformation, Thomas Cramer. I don't know if many of you heard his story, but that was such a shocking example of someone that went against his conscience. Um, Thomas Cramer died at the stake in 1556. Thomas Cramer had served as an actor Archbishop of Canterbury, but he's not remembered for his um, 1549 and 52 editions of the Book of Common Prayer. He was one of the authors. Cramer had been forced to watch the burnings of two other ministers, his colleagues, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in 1555. And after much pressured After seeing his friends burning at the stake, he signed a number of recantations of his faith. But on the eve of his execution, his courage returned as he he stood in St. Mary's Church in Oxford. Instead of repeating his recantations, he repudiated them. Why? Here's what he said, and I quote, And now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience more than anything that I ever did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, his conscience, and written for fear of death to save my life, if it might be, and for as much as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. The hands that he used to sign his recantation of his faith, he regretted it, and he said, That very hand is going to be the first thing to burn. When he came to the stake to the next day, there was that stretching out of his hand. And he held it unshrinkingly in the fire until it was burned to the cinder. Even before his body was injuredly, frequently exclaiming. He was screaming the whole time, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand. What power there is in faith and a clear conscience. It even encourages people to endure persecution yes our warfare is far less dramatic we don't we're not burning at stake anymore nevertheless god's word holds truth holds true there are two necessities for staying on course to the end the first one is holding on to faith The objective deposit of the apostolic faith, the right doctrine, having the right doctrine, that's what it is, holding the faith. And then second, hold on to a good conscience, which is the subjective treasure of a holy life. So armed with faith and a clear conscience, the Christian can withstand anything. With faith and a clear conscience, you will finish your fight well. So let me give you some examples. Application and some principles here regarding your conscience. How can you cultivate that good conscience? These three principles um, are in uh, Andrew's Nazelli book on the conscience, and he, he phrases it in this way. One, your conscience might become more hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Some people think that their mind is broadening, but in reality their conscience is is stretching. They're becoming more and more okay with certain behaviors, with certain thoughts. Feeding excuses to your conscience is like feeding sleeping pills to a watchdog. It is worth for nothing. Secondly, your conscience might follow the standards of other people, such as culture or family or spiritual leaders. You simply go with if you simply go with the flow without thinking through issues, this is what is gonna happen. Your conscience will be compromised. In fact, you can actually damage the gift of your conscience just as you can damage other gifts from God. Oddly enough, Nazali says we can damage it in two opposite ways. One by making it insensitive, what the Bible calls it seared, or by making it oversensitive. We make our conscience insensitive by developing a habit of ignoring its voice of warning so that the voice gets weaker and weaker and finally disappears. I remember my professor telling this once. He said that um, uh, his niece that lived in Brazil, and she um, went to a psychologist because she got pregnant and lost the baby, you know, out of wedlock. And and she was deeply hurt uh, with her conscience. And the, the, the therapist looked at her. Oh, I know what your problem is. Your problem is you're beating up yourself too much about what you've done. And here's what you need to do. You go and you sleep with as many men as you can until you don't feel guilt anymore. It's just appalling, Right? That's how the word the world is, is encouraging us. You just keep doing it and until you don't feel more, more anything. Paul calls this the searing of the conscience. In 1 Timothy 4, chapter 4, verse 2 says that such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as if with hot iron. And then lastly. And I think that is the instruction that we need to, to, to heed is your conscience might conform more to the truth. So the more you know God, the more you know his word and his principles, you will have a conscience that is calibrated and operating and functional. And why is this so important, brothers? Because there is a possibility of Failing. There is a possibility of failing. This is our last point here, is failing to fight the good fight. We read here a warning for us. When we don't cultivate the good conscience, we don't fight for the faith, here's what happens. Verse, uh, second half of verse 19. Keeping uh, faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will, become ta- they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, Paul emphasizing the seriousness and the urgency of the situation. Some have not kept their faith in, in the conscience, but have chosen to abandon them, and consequently the faith has been shipwrecked bringing reproach upon the church. Paul also indicates that moral recklessness, not intellectual problems, uh, not uh, knowing all these things, it is the root of heresy. Morality and lifestyle, and perhaps faith and lifestyle, cannot be separated. We'll see here these notable shipwrecks While some of the elders in Ephesus had fought well, and Paul, before he left the church in Ephesus, exhorted them to remain faithful to the truth and to scriptures, some have failed miserably. And Paul noted them by name. Um, he, He calls them by name Hymenaeus and Alexander. Their failure was rooted in the loss of a good conscience. Hymenaeus and Alexander willfully and deliberately rejected their conscience. And they literally shipwrecked not their faith, but I know that our translation um, says that uh, in regard to their faith, but we know original is the faith. Their doctrine was on the rocks. We know that Hymenaeus went overboard in his eschatology. So let's go to 2 Timothy and learn a little bit more about Hymenaeus. Chapter 2, verse 17. It mentions, um, says that in their talk was we spread like gangrene green, talking about heresies, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Perhaps Alexander was also crazed with this overrealized eschatology. They thought that the um, resurrection had already taken place. This, the point is, they wandered away from the gospel. And it all began with deliberate rejection of their conscience. That's how it starts, with little compromises and little little white lies and little compromises, and eventually it comes to heresy. You see, people will do anything to justify their behavior. Yet, every other reference to Satan um, in the pastoral epistles pictures him as an enemy of the church. An elder must have a good reputation outside the church, or he may fall. In 1 Timothy 3, 7, we have this warning to, to, to elders. They should, they should have a good reputation outside the church, or he might fall into the snare set by Satan. Hmm. Verse 7, Paul's hope is that the opponents will escape the snare of the devil, having been captured by him in order to do his will. Some of the women in Ephesus have already strayed after Satan. While about we look at chapter 5, verse 15. We read here that for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. The only other reference to Satan in the pastorals is in chapter 3, verse 6. And it is the uh, warning there to not uh, ordain a new convert, to make an, a new convert an elder. He says not to be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So related is Paul's comment, comment that ultimately, by the teaching of the Ephesian opponents, these demonic teachings, uh, these are uh, demonic teachings in its origin. He uses the word diabolos, the word devil, or uh, uh, or slanderous to characterize these this is slanderous in the pastoral epistle. So every time that you see the word is slanderous in first Timothy that is the word diabolus, is the same word for the devil. It may be easier to accept the idea that Satan being an agent of God and his punishment of sinners is seen not as much as a voluntary obedience to the wishes of God as it is natural consequences of a sinner being thrown into the satanic sphere without divine protection. Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers are conscientious of Satan's fight against believers. Now, what does this phrase that Paul is delivering them to Satan have handed them over to Satan? Most commentators see this as excommunication, and I agree with them, excommunication from the church. The world outside the church is Satan's realm. Being removed from the Christian fellowship, Hymenaeus and Alexander are separated from the spiritual protection of the church and fully exposed to the power of Satan. So the last stage of church discipline is the excommunication from the church. And this really, this is a lesson that they must learn, is best thought by the personal exposure to the malice of those who, like themselves, are fighting the truth. If you're identifying yourself with the world, that's where you're going to end up. You're going to end up in the world. This does not exclude the idea of a possible physical punishment, but that is not the primary purpose here. Some commentators actually point to the similar language even in the book of Job. and Job chapter 2, verse 6, the Septuagint is the translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this is how it reads. And the Lord said to the devil, Behold, I deliver him to you. The only other time the phrase deliver to Satan occurs is in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. So there's this man at the church there that is sleeping with his stepmother and eventually gets um, excommunicated to the church. And this is what Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that, this is important, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though these people, being believers, may be excommunicated from the church, they will still be saved. Instead of boasting over the immorality present among them and their tolerance of it, the church was to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paul seems to be suggesting that that physical punishment is remedial. It is not a... um, Punishment just for itself, Satan can punish the body, but not the spirit, and all for the purpose of the person's eventual redemption. this is the same idea here in, in chapter uh, one verse twenty as communication as the final means of discipline is thoroughly bibli- uh, thoroughly biblical principle, it is a Pauline demand laid on all churches now Some even argue that this could be, you know, physical death for some people or physical pain as a punishment for sin. Parallel, then, would be the the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. It says that Satan filled their hearts to lie and and then they eventually died. It could be that Satan was an instrument even in in their killing. Or the blindness of Elimas, the magician, in Acts chapter 13, or the sickness and the death of some Corinthians. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse uh, 30 from chapter 11 that we read, every um, Lord's Supper says that some have fallen sick because of their disobedience. Um, Other scholars, like uh, the early church uh, father Chrysostom includes the example of Job, but this is in his case Punishment was not the issue. In the case of Job, although he did suffer physical pain, and this parallel would introduce the concept of Satan being an agent of God to bring about repentance in the life of a believer. A commentator argues from rabbinical statements that this view of Satan was current in Judaism, along with the view of Satan being God's chief adversary both things were true. Parallel to this passage in First Corinthians 5, where Satan seems to be acting as an agent of God in punishing sinners. This is what Chrysostom says, as executioners, though themselves laden with numerous crimes, are made the correctors of others, so it is here with the evil spirit. Satan is being used to correct believers. Now, The purpose of it all is to rescue them, to restore them, to repentance. It's rescuing the shipwrecked. Did Paul write these two men off simply? Not at all. Rather, he handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. The purpose was remedial, so they would learn not to blaspheme. Not so much an act of punishment, although it is included there, but as a push toward redemption. The appropriate remedial measure for those who live within believing fellowship but conduct themselves as outsiders is to return them to Satan's realm. There, Satan will deal with them as recaptured deserters, sinners experiencing the natural consequence of their sin. And in certain in Satan's realm, they will learn in the full experiential sense of the word not to speak evil of God by distorting his message for ulterior reasons or personal gain. The language that we read in 1 Corinthians 5.5, that Paul says, I have decided to hand it over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul is fervently hoped that both Hymenaeus and Alexander would be restored. And you know what? That man in 1 Corinthians chapter five did repent. He was restored and the church opened its doors again for him and welcomed him in the fellowship and they were encouraged to help him and to be an encouragement to him. So Paul cast Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church away from God's care and protection and thus under Paul, uh, the power of Satan. It was Paul's intention that they be battered by Satan and that their separation from God in this way be brought home to them um, by for separation from God's people. Though it might appear otherwise, Paul's attitude was actually an attitude of grace. Severe grace, as he explained in the different circumstances to the uh, Thessalonians. Let's turn there. It's the last text that we're going to take a look at. Before I conclude, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. A very similar principle of excommunication from the church here. He says, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 of Second the Thessalonians. It says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him, So that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is the proper work of the church. A church that takes its work seriously will do this when the occasion requires. So in conclusion, the message is clear. We, like Timothy, are called to fight the good fight. This is your calling. This is my calling. Our method then to fight this good fight is hanging on to faith and hanging on to a good conscience. This, w- this is the way that Paul and Timothy fought as did their Reformation counterparts as we just read about Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Kramer and all of these people that suffered for the sake of their faith. Oh, our prayer might, might be, Lord, arm your people with faith and a good conscience, and protect us from shipwreck of our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you did not leave us without instructions. You have left us words, uh, doctrine, to help us understand you better, and help to understand us better, and to understand our hearts. Lord, may we keep sound doctrine. May we yearn to know more about you so that we might be transformed. Lord, and help us to not go against our conscience, to inform our conscience with your words and not let it be defined by what the world defines. And I know that there is many, and my heart grieves for them as I think about how they left the faith. Oh Lord, may you keep us from shipwrecking our faith. Help us, Father, to help us, Father, to keep the faith and keep the good conscience. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing, but we ask that by your grace, you would do just that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.